Hello there, I'm Ted Asaragadu, and in this episode, it's all about the music of Gen X. Depending on who you agree with, Gen X was born between the years of 1965 and 1980. We, and yes, by we, I'm lumping myself into that generation since I was born in 1965, were the generation that's a bit like the middle child, born after baby boomers, a generation that had and has a tremendous effect on pop culture, politics, economics, and, well, let's just say baby boomers cast a long shadow, a shadow that's still being felt. My guests have been on the pod before, and they, like me, are Gen Xers and colleagues from Popdose, the pop culture site, started in 2008, and the site that we both wrote for. Bo Dewar and D.W. Dunphy are waiting in the green room, and we'll be here in just a few. But first... How about getting social? Connect with Planet LP on Groupie, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just look for us on the search bar. Email me at ted at planetlp.com if you have a topic you'd like to hear as an episode, or you're an artist or a music writer who would like to talk about your work. Tell your friends, family, and acquaintances about Planet LP and tell them they can listen on the most popular podcasting apps. Just search for Planet LP and subscribe and follow. Okay, let's get into the music of Gen X with D.W. Dunphy and Bo Dewar. As I said from the outset, D.W. Dunphy and Bo Dewar are colleagues of mine from Popdose. Both have written exclusively on music and other expressions of pop culture, and I welcome them back to Planet OP. Hi, D.W. Hello. And hello, Bo. Hi, and, and you mean extensively rather than exclusively, right? Because I tend to write about other stuff. Did I say exclusively? You write write extensively about music and pop culture on Popdose, but you're you're also a big sports writer too. Yeah, especially because I keep gaining weight, so I'm getting bigger and bigger. (laughs) Is it like that? Is it like that that scene in in Airplane at Leon's getting larger? He writes extensively about exclusivity. Yeah, okay. If I said exclusively, I didn't mean that. I meant extensively. Okay, gents, let's get into the discussion by first asking what musical genres, songs, albums, or artists to you exemplify Gen X. Let's start with Bo, since he had the most technical issues with his microphone prior to recording this, so I need to give him the floor. <laughs> it's been ironic listening to you two talk about uh, your relatives who have trouble with technology while I'm sitting here trying three different microphones uh, and an audio <laughs> interface and everything like that. So, yeah, it's it's kind of like, uh, we, you know, we were the generation that had to program our parents' VCRs. Now we're the generation where I actually was wishing that my son was home because he probably could have figured this out before I did. Uh, but in terms of... Um, in terms of genres, I think if you kind of work your way backwards, there was kind of alt-pop. For some reason, the first name that pops into mind when I say that is Belly, even though I know they weren't the most popular of that genre. And then there was alt-rock, uh, which became synonymous with grunge. Then if you go back a little bit more, it's basically MTV, although a lot of the artists who were on MTV earlier you would consider boomers, but I think they were influential. And also we were the ones with disposable income. And we, well, our parents' disposable income at that time. <laughs> and also we would just plant ourselves in front of MTV because it was fascinating at the time. All of those you could associate with, with us. DW, agree, disagree? I agree. And what Bo hit on was really uh, the key to MTV is you know when it started in 1980, I'd say for the first two years, it was dominated by the acts that boomers signed off on, mm-hmm. but only because you know this was a, a brand new medium, practically. They were taking what was available, not necessarily what was custom made for MTV. So, of course, you're going to get a dominance of, of solo surviving Beatles and Stones and Eric Clapton gets his second, third win through this. I mean, shockingly enough, make a video for the Grateful Dead, and suddenly they have a top 50 hit, which was a big surprise. I'd say it wasn't until probably Madonna was like the first MTV star that was unique to MTV, at least in my mind, like the big stars. Other big stars of that time were already proceeding. To some degree, 
Prince, to much larger degree, Bruce Springsteen, and of course, Michael Jackson was with the Jackson 5, so he had a long history with. But getting to the main point, MTV is part of it. I think the other part is that this generation was not resigned to just listening to the mainstream rock radio. We also gravitated to what was considered modern rock radio or uh, college radio. So these were the places where you got involved with bands like U2, pre-Joshua Tree. You got involved Mm -hmm. with bands like R.E.M., pre-Documents. I think those were kind of like part of the influences where a lot of people of our generation wanted to find something that was their own. That said, unfortunately, we own hair metal. It's (laughs) it's ours, folks. I'm sorry we did this to you. But remember, every rose Here's the deed. Here's the deed to Gen X. It says, owner, hair metal. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's going to be on our our tombstone, I'm afraid. (laughs) And, you know, I wanted to throw this out there as well. This generation was brought up with TV as being our primary source of entertainment. Uh, Latchkey kids, we came Mm -hmm. home and we watched TV. How many people were introduced to They Might Be Giants through Tiny Toons Adventures, where there was an episode where they did two segments, animated segments. One was for the cover of Istanbul, not Constantinople, and the other one was for Particle Man. That wasn't MTV at all, but the idea that we're drawing all this music from all over the place, I think, you know, old guy talking. This is one of the, <laughs> this is one of the last generations. You're only as old as you feel, I guess, right? I feel decrepit. Oh, geez. So you are old man talking. Oh, Go God, ahead. yes. Yeah. But I, I feel like we're one of the last groups of people who are getting music from all over the place. After this... You know, it's like, all right, I'm just getting my music from MTV. Then I'm just getting my music from Napster, whatever Mm -hmm. is flowing my way. And now you're moving to Spotify and more dominant, what is hot on TikTok. TikTok. Yeah, yeah. No, I hear you. So I was thinking about, as you were, both of you were talking, and to answer the question from my perspective, I think it would be hip hop. And also grunge that is really characteristic of of Gen X. So to me, hip hop was truly the revolutionary genre. And grunge to it was sort of a remix of hard rock and elements of punk. And that particular genre harkens back to the previous generation. So like when I think of hip hop artists, I'm thinking, you know, like Run DMC, Beasties, Public Enemy, Big Daddy Kane, NWA, Dre, Snoop, Ice Cube. Tribe Called Quest, even TLC, Queen Latifah, Missy Elliott, Biggie, Nas. I'm sure I'm missing a lot. But the point is, is that if you talk about a golden age of hip hop or rap, those are the artists that tend to be lumped together as the classics or the standard, the gold standard in a way. And what comes after it tends to build upon it. But hip hop to me was a very Gen X kind of expression I'm not the biggest hip hop fan. I like the genre. I'm not an expert in it in any way. But what I hear is something that what you were saying, DW, is that the musical sources that influenced a generation's tastes came or taste, plural or singular, came from different mediums, whether it was radio, whether it was MTV, whether it was your, you know, your big brother in the in the in the bedroom locking you out and you had to put your ear to the door, a best friend or whatever, that the sources of all of those musical genres kind of get put into a blender. And so when I hear the golden age of hip hop, and even prior to that, as it was coming up from the underground in the eighties, I'm hearing expressions of radio. Like if you're listening to mass appeal radio, where you would hear a song that's pop, another one that's rock, one that's country, one that's soul, that gets all mixed into the soundtrack. So I'll go with hip hop with grunge as a second tier because mostly because that's where I plant my flag is sort of the, the rock genre. That's, that's my, that's my jam as it were. But you know what? I, I, I totally buy into that because again, one of the things that any group of young people want is something that is entirely their own. Mm -hmm. And hip hop was, 
even though you know there there's a, a history of it in the in the late seventies party culture right. in New York, but it was very much as he said underground. It came to prominence in the eighties. I'd say the ambassadors to many were the the Beastie Boys, but the big name in this field is Public Enemy, and I think that when young people got that it was like this is mine this is not my parents music yes whereas in in some way with grunge grunge was an angrier version it was more uh, a complicated version but when you listen to pearl jam you can get sort of a hint of the who and when you listen to pearl jam you're also getting you know as would be revealed later on a lot of Neil Young, they became very close at this time. So it was the next generation of rock. And there were parents that could listen to that music with their kids. I think that might be part of the reason why that particular movement only lasted for three or four years and then became very commercial and, and diluted in, in a lot of ways. Well, speaking of listening to music with your kids or playing music with your kids, Bo, you play not only drums, but you're a guitar player and a bass player, and you play with your kids, right? They're, we're in the School of Rock that the movie was based on in a way, but you, you're very active in that. What do your kids think of what is now classic music? Do they find that they have a connection to it? Maybe they were raised with it. You played a lot of the music when they were growing up. Talk about that. Well, my kid's too good for me to play with now. <laughs> but, you know, between the School of Rock kids that I see and also being a substitute teacher, if you look at whatever T-shirts they're wearing, it's mm-hmm. Nirvana. That's the most <laughs> common T-shirt that I see kids today. And I mean, high school age kids, it's Nirvana. It's not Taylor Swift. It's not Drake. It's not anyone who is dominating the charts today. And at School of Rock, there doesn't seem to be much demand to play anything that is really new. So Gen X music kind of dominates at School of Rock. It, it really does. And there's a lot of interest in, in grunge. Well, there's some 80s influences as well. And I have discovered Tower of Power's What is Hip? Through School mm-hmm. of Rock, <laughs> because wow. they can play it, and it's it's, it's really which is a great song. Yeah. It is. And it's really yeah. impressive Tower to, Power, to hear that. Band. Yeah, kids today. I feel like to some extent they're still adopting what's ours. If you look at the top hundred album charts and things like that, it's actually a lot of boomer music. It's Queen and the Beatles <laughs> and uh, groups like that. One of the top songs of the past year was what? Do you remember? Oh yeah, I remember the, the, Kate the Bush breakout hit. Hill. Kate Bush, that's right. Of all people, it's funny that you know we're the sandwich generation in so many ways, and yet the music that we grew up with it casts a long shadow as well. Uh, and then does, obviously yeah. the boomer music. I mean, I I have no idea how people still tour in their seventies. I mean, I'm fifty two. I can barely carry things. Good for them uh, for almost literally touring until they drop. I remember watching MTV and, you know, it was a hodgepodge of genres. You know, you could see early hip hop. uh, You could see a lot of kind of top 40 stuff. You could see rock. I mean, you know, Madonna leading into Def Leppard, leading into Run DMC. You know, that was a mix that you wouldn't get elsewhere. You still don't get it. Everything is very siloed. Now it's kind of all over the place. I remember thinking, oh, no one's going to be, you know, thinking about this music in 20 years, the same way we think about the Beatles, but they kind of do. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, yeah, it, it really surprised me. I think one of the things that really is emblematic of this is prior to Stranger Things bringing Kate Bush back to prominence with that song, there was this sudden and strange resurgence for uh, Fleetwood Mac's dreams. And that was because there was a TikTok video, I believe, of somebody. The cranberry juice. Yeah. 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 And when that came out. <laughs> and suddenly they're back on the charts. So that kind of open field for any kind of music, I think partially because of TikTok, but I do believe that that kind of openness is starting to go away because the record labels now see what a strong marketing tool there is there. 
It is huge. And it's an interesting phenomenon because with TikTok, even though there's this mysterious for you category where you can just watch these videos, click through with, you know, you remember that short attention span theater that used to be popular when we were a bit younger? Well, this is definitely short attention span theater. And there's just something about those 15 to 60 second videos that captivate people and the hooks that are used because they'll watch them over and over and over. And it's the hook that gets imprinted in people's brains. But when they hear the full song, sometimes they're all like, oh yeah, I heard that on TikTok, (laughs) but they're not hearing it until they hear the hook. Like I was, you know, that movie that has just come out, it's one of the more popular ones now, Megan about the animatronic or the AI doll. That's also a killer doll. There are a lot of TikTok remixes about Megan's dance. And I did not recognize the Lady Gaga hook, but my my daughter was laughing and saying, it's Gaga. And I'm all like, is it? I don't even bother with TikTok. So I'm not listening for those little hooks, but she's so conditioned to that, that the hooks are the thing that grab the attention of it. Um, and and of course, they're I'm sure they're using classic hooks from whether it's the Beatles or whoever. And then conversely, there's also the uh, phenomenon that a lot of the current music journalists are really upset about and it's the lack of chord changes and the lack of diversity in sound Mm -hmm. with new music and the reason why a lot of that is is because when it's being built for tiktok it's being built for a minute and you are hearing that minute repeated sometimes two three times to build up that three minute song so there isn't a lot of variation from start to finish so that's mm-hmm. kind of like the opposite side of the TikTok effect there. From a musician standpoint, and you're both musicians, I should say, DW has made a number of albums and really you're kind of a multimedia artist and Bo has been playing, I don't know, you've probably been playing since you were a teenager, I'm guessing. Yeah, basically. I mean, I've gotten back into it more recently. I mean, I didn't play as much as I, in retrospect, would have wanted to through young adulthood. But um, but yeah, I mean, I, I picked up the guitar in, in high school, had piano lessons starting from age 10 or whatever, uh, and studied percussion in college. I don't have a timpani set at home, so that's that skill was kind of atrophied. It's a little bit impractical. But just from a musician's standpoint, what DW was saying is that this TikTok has this almost reverse effect that the music has very little change, that there's nothing that's that interesting because of the TikTok effect of this, just this clip playing you find and I know that you're you're kind of in an interesting space with regards to school of rock because you're with students who are learning full on songs but they they themselves I'm sure are affected by what is happening on TikTok cuz they're probably on it but do you find that maybe they're going to the classics because they find and I'm talking classics like 30 year old music that was new when we were younger but when they express like they have Nirvana t-shirts or they want to learn songs like Queen songs or maybe Beatles songs. This is different from what DW was expressing or seeing in that the TikTok effect hasn't really affected School of Rock. I have never seen anything on TikTok. Um, I just haven't haven't looked at it. I watch a lot of YouTube, and actually, so <laughs> do my kids. And there is kind of a subculture in YouTube of music theory of <laughs> people who really take apart songs. And Adam Neely is one of the best at that. Uh, Rick Beato Rick Beato is yeah, kind of all I over the place, but he occasionally does theory things. There's a guy I was just watching this morning. Uh, David Bennett did a recreation of the day in the life, which was just fascinating because he pulled it apart by building it back up. And then 12 tone, which is fascinating. Polyphonic does some of that. And so, and all these are fairly popular YouTube creators uh, who are taking apart songs. I have seen them defend modern hip hop before, but at the same time, those aren't the songs that they're choosing because what do you do? Uh, You say, okay, here's an 808 drum machine pattern, same 16 Mm -hmm. note hi-hats that you hear and everything. And, and that's pretty much it. I think a lot of people are interested in music. And if you're interested in music, you know, just beyond a snippet and so forth. And I think that that's where you go. And also, you know, as, as you said, I mean, even though I don't follow TikTok, I'm familiar with what happened with Fleetwood Mac and the guy skateboarding with cranberry juice. And then Mick Fleetwood went out and made his own video (laughs) of doing exactly the same thing. I just think there's that innate hunger in people to do that. Now, 
it seems less popular in a sense because the market's so fragmented beyond that. You have people who listen to, uh, I think it's the Deftones. It's unlistenable to me, but uh, there is one of the girls at School of Rock just loves it. She's just really looks like a fairly meek 17-year-old girl, and then she gets on stage and does her like metal voice, and it's really strange. And then you have people who are into various types of metal. Uh, you have what's left of kind of jam band culture. It's so all over the map that it means that you know, something. Well, it's like TV in the sense that if you get, if you got 10 million viewers in 1985, you were a flop. If you get 10 million viewers today, you might be in the top 10 of everything that's not football. And it's like that in music as well. It's uh, kings of a lesser kingdom essentially, and so and. You can have top 40. I mean, we talk about Drake. Drake has set all sorts of chart records. If you ask me to, to sing a Drake song right now, I could not. I just can't. It's very difficult to generalize what's happening in music right now. I mean, when, you know, again, at our age, it was genre hopping, but it was, it tended to be stuff that was on MTV. Mm-hmm. And today, I mean, I guess there are TikTok hits. I guess that's built up some of the Olivia Rodrigo cult of personality that's going on right now. All of these things coexist at the same time now. And to an extent, Nirvana is no different than Billie Eilish. You know, they're just one is 30 years older than the other, but they they coexist in whatever medium that you're looking at. Well, if I could just circle back to Deftones for a minute, Sacramento Band, check out their album, White Pony, that came out in 2000. So it's a 23-year-old album, but I think you as a drummer might appreciate the way in which the, the, I can't remember the name of the drummer, but the way in which he lays down some patterns. It's very, very, it's not progressive so much, but it's very interesting in the way in which it's situated within this kind of very, very hard-rocking, quasi-metal sound. They're not necessarily screamo. Although there are some screaming moments, but I, I did find White Pony to be one of those albums that I listened to a lot when it came out in 2000. So good album. question for both of you. I don't know if I'm using the correct terminology on it. When we were doing the majority of our writing for Popdos, we -hmm. would call it the gear shift change, but I believe it's called chord modulation, uh, where you get to the dramatic part toward the end of a song. You probably just had your bridge, your breakdown, where it's it's minimal uh, music, and it's mostly vocal-oriented, and then you kick back into the chorus, but you do it in one chord higher for dramatic effect. One of the things that keeps coming up that people tell me is they have not heard that chord modulation happen in a hit song, like top 20 song, for many, many years. This used to be ubiquitous. We would hmm. used to make jokes about how you know even the most bland song would end up kicking it up a notch toward the end. Just to spice it up, as it were? Yeah, yeah, just to give you a little more oomph. I'll give you an example. We'll say Backstreet Boys. Uh, you mm-hmm. think of the song, I Want It That Way. You have your your quiet, you know, sing-along, just a spare piano. When they kick back into the chorus toward the end, you've gone up a notch to really sell home, you know, this is the big thing. And a lot of people are saying they just don't, hear that anymore that's disappeared and again that's the effect of because you're not building a song you're creating a song out of a one minute tiktok oriented thing mm-hmm. so, so you're frankensteining this one minute into something that's more marketable in your minds ted Bo, have you guys experienced this yourself where it's like you know i didn't think about it but i have not heard that kind of trope in recent years. Bo, you take it first, and then I've got some thoughts on it. I think Rick Beato had a uh, had a video about that recently, and 
I would probably notice it more if that's what I was listening to. And, you know, I do make an effort. I mean, at the end of the year, I checked out all these best of lists and I said, okay, let me see what critics say uh, were the best whatever songs or albums of the past year. And I'm going to sample them and see what I listened to. And of course, the uh, band that I came out listening to that I hadn't heard of before and probably should have was uh, the Canadian group Always, spelled A-L-V-V-A-Y-S. And, you know, very much 90s alt pop with a little bit of little bit of modern touches to it. And, mm-hmm. you know, their music does change as you listen to a song. It might jump up a key, you know, the good old truck driver modulation. It might just be sort of a different tone it might be that there are more backup vocals than there used to be it might be that the guitar is more distorted so that sort of journey it certainly does still exist in their music even though that's relatively simple music i mean a lot of it a lot of that tends to be three chords or four chords and so forth you know sometimes the axis of awesome you know four chords but there are some changes that run through that hip-hop is not known for chord changes and hip-hop is a fairly dominant genre right now. If you look at the charts right now, a lot of it's hip-hop or a lot of it is modern R&B, which is at this point very closely related to hip-hop. Or a lot of it is kind of dance-oriented music where, I mean, even Coldplay has done stuff. Or Maroon 5, I think, will do stuff that is harmonically rather simple. And of course then, yet we get to Christmas and we all listen to Mariah Carey. And if you break <laughs> down this song... Want to or not. Really, really. I try yeah, to avoid yeah. it, but it's you can't, really. I think as, as a theory nerd, it is a song I have for which I have the utmost respect. Because if you look at the chord changes... For that song, it is as complicated as anything Donald Fagan from Steely Dan would look at that and go, whoa. I mean, it is all over the map. It is sophisticated. It's a song that you like or not. It's a marvelous construction. I mean, it's like, to me, a lot of kind of King Crimson music where there's some King Crimson music I really like and some that I'm kind of indifferent to, but all of it is really sophisticated. And so I think there's still, there is still a marker for that. I don't know if you're going to hear... Steely Dan cranking out the jazz chords these days, but I still think that it may just be what not what I'm listening to. Because again, I don't listen to modern hip hop with no chord changes. I, mean, I feel like the days that Run DMC brought in Eddie Martinez to lay down some chords on guitar, I think those days have long passed. So I guess in the in the top forty. Perhaps that's true, but again, I think things are so fragmented that, you know, for everyone who's listening to um, modern hip hop, there's someone who's listening to Guster, and there's someone who's listening to New Pornographers, or someone who's listening to The Decemberists, and there's someone who's listening to Nirvana, and there's someone who's listening to Always, and someone, and a lot of this is kind of hidden from people. I mean, I w- remember being surprised when I went to see Metric thinking that I was the only person who heard of them because th- who plays them? Not um, on American radio, that's for sure. Or no, radio, definitely radio not. Radio in the U.S., but, I should say. Right, radio in the U.S., but you know, I went to go see them at Strathmore in uh, Silver Spring, Maryland, and it's packed. There are all these different audiences out there, and so I think within those audiences, there are enough people who have that hunger for music that does go through changes, that does... I mean, I think Taylor Swift's music... It goes through. I mean, um, my favorite song of hers is Cardigan. And the mood of that song changes throughout. And then then it sort of calls back to the beginning at the end of it. So you've gone on a little journey in what about a four minute pop song. She or Drake is probably the most popular recording artist of our time. The thing with Taylor Swift is she is almost a genre onto herself and her fans are very loyal. So she has the ability to say, okay, I want to switch this up and go straight to a folk area where I bring in members of the national to help me write these songs. And then she could bounce back to, uh, to full on pop, or she can go and re-record her songs and bring them up to date to do something else. She has so much more power. And I mean this in a good way. She has more power than I think any pop stars had in the last 30 years. She has almost Beatles level power as Mm -hmm. to, I want to do this. I want to do this this way. No one's going to stop me. And if they try, 
I'm going to walk around them, and so will everybody else. So, yeah. One thing we know about Taylor Swift fans, they are incredibly loyal, probably more so than NASCAR fans. To answer your question, DW, from my perspective, and you, you guys know that Keith Creighton from Pop Dose comes on once a month to talk about new music. We had assembled our best of 2022, and I was looking at the list that I put together, the playlist of some of the songs that I thought were the best of. And same with Keith. He gave me a, a group and I took his group of artists and I picked songs. And I'm trying to think about this chord change, this modulation, this thing that spices things up towards the end and says, let's go for this big finish. And honestly, most of the songs on here don't do it. There's one that does. And it's by Stephen Page, who was in Bare Naked Ladies. New album is called Excelsior. And I put the song, Look to the Stars. And he does that little change towards the end and really kind of sells it at the end. But the rest of them, I'm all like, hmm, maybe not. They kind of stay within that same structure throughout the entire, you know, three to five minutes that these songs are. So it's an interesting question. I didn't, I didn't really think about that in terms of maybe it was being overused and it was, as you say, at one point in, uh, in music recording, and then now it's barely used. But you you highlight it in in Taylor Swift's music, where she is working with musicians who are older. I mean, the guy, the co-producer who was in the, is in the National. I can't remember his name, but I'm sure he's bringing in ideas. Said, why don't we try it this way? Let's kind of spice it up. Uh, this is something that, and maybe he's got his ear to the ground, as it were, and says this this technique has not been used much in current music. So maybe she's just open to it. And one of the things about Taylor Swift is one of the other producers that she works with very frequently is Jack Antonoff, who mm-hmm. was with the short-lived fun and has been sort of the, how do I put he's, this? He's the it guy. He's uh, the it seems it like guy. he want, yeah, he want, people want to work with him. And I've got my issue with Jack Antonoff in that he has a very limited palette of production techniques and he's used them over and over again. And the songs are starting to sound a little similar. Like this current Midnight's album by Taylor Swift to me sounds like St. Vincent's album that Jack Antonoff had produced uh, a few years ago. Mass Seduction. seduction Yeah, from 2017. Yeah, that was the one. And I hear those production elements in the current Taylor Swift album, Midnight. So I'm like, wow, I heard that years ago and it's still there. Okay. Thank you, Jack. I suspect that at least in terms of the working relationship, he's probably a lot like, say, a Rick Rubin, where mm-hmm. the the legend is he pretty much puts everybody in the room and the mics are set up and everything is EQ'd and then he kind of walks away and does meditation for a while while they do their thing. I feel like Jack Antonoff has his settings and he has his methodology of working. After that, he lets them alone. He He's not necessarily... Plus, I also think and this is just speculation with all the women artists who work with him, that he's respectful of them rather than, you know, all this stuff we hear about, like Dr. Luke, who is another one of those producers who works with a lot of women, but he also has a lot of controversy with them. The allegations that Kesha brought up against him, that right. he was abusive right. and, and, and things like that. And he effectively killed her career for a long time because she was not allowed to work with anyone but him, but she refused to work with him because of what she said was the abuse. <laughs> that might be yeah. why there's so much Antonoff in our world. Yes, the conversation a little bit back to the whole notions of, of generation since we're talking about music of our generation, Gen X. This concept of generations to me smacks a little bit of astrology. It, it seems like in addition to people's preferred pronouns, 
that there's a tendency to also make sure that people know what generation you're from. And I don't know if the dividing line is that bright, but I look at, for example, you know, I was born in 65. So technically I'm right there on the cusp. If I was born in 64, I would have been a boomer. Oh my God, would my tastes have changed? I don't know. This idea of that you can get these defined generations and people can say, well, as a millennial or as a Gen Z, and that's supposed to mean something. Like you have these shared moments that are unique to your generation. Do you find that to be the case? Because I look at it as a little more messy. Well, there certainly are shared experiences. Of course, I I think that those can be overstated. I mean, with boomers, people always say Woodstock. Well, I mean, how many people Mm -hmm. really experienced Woodstock? You know, it wasn't like this was... um, Live Aid and it was ubiquitous on TV or something like that. For the boomers, I mean, you couldn't escape the Vietnam War. At a later generation, you couldn't escape 9-11 or before that, the Berlin Wall falling or Mm -hmm. um, having MTV or having the invention of the iPhone. I've seen one breakdown of generations by people who are gamers. And by gamer, that means playing something socially, whether it's, you know, Call of Duty or FIFA or Madden, Minecraft, um, this sort of yeah. thing where people, people share Creed, these. You can just start naming these, right? Right. Five Nights yeah, at Freddy's. Things like that where, yeah, whereas for us playing a video game meant, you know, you put a quarter in and you played Pac-Man or Galaga or something like that. So I've seen some talk that that's a delineation in generations is whether you mm-hmm. grew up with gaming. But of course, there are plenty of people in this generation who have never played a video game. Uh, right. So and, and gaming tends to skew heavily male as well, whereas I, I would think the MTV audience was probably fairly mixed. And for big news events, I mean, there's no gender gap on 9-11 or the Vietnam War. Well, I mean, you could be drafted if you were male in Vietnam, but it was the, the tragedy was shared by all. Perhaps shared experiences make things a bit different and also changes in technology. I mean, we remember when there was no internet. I think that changes perhaps how we interact on the internet. I think we may be more cautious than people who just go on and document every aspect of their lives. You know, I'd like Instagram to think so, but I see people that yeah. are older than me that it's an open book, man. Well, I reach the point where I don't really care. <laughs> so <laughs> so there is that. But at the same time, I mean, yeah, there I mean there are certain things that you know that I'm cautious about. You know, I, I struggle with some of the technology of it. I mean, of course I could obviously download TikTok and look at it right now if I wanted to. But at the same time, I struggle with Instagram and Facebook stories because I always want to pause them and say, hey, hey, wait, I want to see that again. What just happened? Mm-hmm. Some apps you can do that, some apps you you can't. And we go back to, you know, programming the VCR. We knew how to program the VCR and our parents didn't. And that changed how we consumed media. Yeah, you're right. You can't just cut off at one year. Um, mm-hmm. Everything is, you know, there's going to be a cusp yeah, I've heard 1965 for Gen X. I have no idea when Gen X ends. It's supposed to be like 1980. Right. And I have no idea when millennials, re- I mean, for years, I just thought of millennials as you know being people fresh out of college. But then you go, oh, wait, it's been 15 years since I started thinking that, <laughs> which means the people who were 21 when the term millennial came into vogue are now 36. I think millennials are in their 40s now. So I think like, so. Yeah. According, yeah, according to, and so now it's. Zoomers, I guess my kids are Zoomers. So, and hey, millennials, yeah. welcome to middle age. <laughs> yeah, yeah, glad, <laughs> glad you could catch up to us in, in that respect. So, um, <laughs> exactly. but yeah, and there are also demographic trends where there were fewer kids born the years that we were born. And well, that's true. Um, yeah, did, did, and did also, just off. yeah, there was that drop off, and that has accounted for uh, the fact that the boomers and millennials have have had greater representation in a lot of areas because there simply are more of them. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm beginning to think that, you know, Gen X may never elect a president because, you know, it's, we, we're still electing boomers and the next one might be a, well, okay. I guess Obama qualifies. He was, as Gen X, but, he, was he was yeah. close, very close, but yeah, he was still a boomer. And then Biden's right. not, not a boomer. So, you know, Okay, previous generation. So, I mean, yeah, yeah, you think of politics right now, you think of old guys, and then you think of AOC or Lauren Boebert. The people in between mm-hmm. um, are different. So, 
again, yeah, it's difficult to define, but at the same time, I think there are very real differences for someone born in 1970 and someone born in 1990. They are inescapable and people may react to those circumstances differently. I mean, my kids' musical tastes may be closer to mine than they would be to one of their classmates, but the experiences that they're going to have are going to be very different. What about you, DW? Well, the thing about these generational boxes is that I feel like most of the people within them, uh, except for one exception, are either not interested in them, maybe don't really grasp the idea of being in that. A lot of it is arbitrary. So I feel, and maybe this is just my opinion, I feel like the boomers are very invested with the idea of being a boomer except when it's used as a slur, like, you know, okay, boomer. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so it, it's something that they kind of take pride in, whereas in the time that I was, I was coming up, I had no idea I was Gen X, nor did I care. And when, you know, Reality Bites, the movie came out, and there's this mm-hmm. whole idea of what Gen X is or should be, I didn't care then either. After that, you're talking about the millennials, and uh, you know, I, I used to work with a lot of millennials, and they hated that term. They're like, "We do not like being compartmentalized that way." It, uh, you know, what are you doing? I I don't have nearly as close a relationship to people in the Gen Z area, so I don't know what their situation is. I would say that. As each successive generation has moved on, there has been, in terms of music, there has been less of an interest in that compartmentalization to where the Gen Z people can really take in all of it or they can break it down into this one sub, sub, subsection of a subgenre, and that's where they stay. I would say like boomers, there's some artists they will cling to and it's ride or die all the way. Then there there are Gen Xers who like some of that music too, but they all yeah. like this other thing. So in terms of music, and this kind of bounces back to when Bo was talking about School of Rock and why, why Nirvana? Why are they playing Beatles songs? Why are they not really gravitating to the new stuff? Because it's more challenging. I think we're, I hate to use the term inflection point because it's so political, but I think we are at that point where the current generation is looking for something that is more challenging. They're not finding it in the music that they are being delivered. And sometimes when they find it, it's for the wrong reasons. So a case in point with that is, say, Olivia Rodrigo had last year, I believe it was last year, big breakout album and hit. Sour, yeah. And it was was exciting and it was angry and it was all of these things. This year, we have a lot of artists that came out and they're doing very well, but it's the wrong lessons from that album. It's all the anger and none of the spirit of it. So that's where you mm-hmm. get songs like Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Bitch. Or you get uh, Gale with A B C D E F U. That one, that one's Keith's daughter's favorite. She turned him onto that one. It's almost like, and again, old guy speaking yet again. But it seems like someone saw what made Olivia Rodrigo so successful, and said, "All right, let's just go for the jugular." It's just about the anger. Yeah, anger for anger's sake. Right. In terms of history repeating itself, this is kind of Nirvana all over again, where they just heard soft, loud, soft, loud, the lesson of the pixies, mm-hmm. and I am sad and I am angry. Throughout the, the first half of the 90s, it was duplication, I'm sad, I'm angry, and that's what burned that out quickly. It's almost like, again, we're back to let's look at what Olivia Rodrigo is doing it and duplicate that without any sort of emotional nuance or anything like that. Let's just do that. And heck, 
uh, it seems to be working. We talked a little bit about some of our favorite, if you want to call it college rock years or alternative rock. And Nirvana has certainly been referenced many times in this conversation. But in the realm of rock, where, as I said earlier, I plant my flag, it's the music of Pearl Jam, which I do do love. Those first three albums are really great to me. Smashing Pumpkins, U2, Simple Minds, Tears for Fears, R.E.M., New Order, P.J. Harvey, Talking Heads, The Smiths, The Clash, Big Audio Dynamite, Blink-182, Belly, Sonic Youth, X. All those bands to me, when I when I lumped that and I just started typing it out, like, who are, who are some of these bands that I really, really admire? And I love listening to their music. And I just started typing these names out. And I thought about this, of that, can you just package these in the realm of rock but no they they do have a lot of variation within the genre i mean i you look at u2 and you look at the talking heads and you very very different bands same with belly and uh and pearl jam very different bands and so there's a more of a, a variety in what i would call alternative rock and to me this is kind of this is sort of emblematic or exemplifies a, a gen x soundtrack to me if you were to compile in the genre of rock, I would put those artists in there and I'm sure there's tons more that I've left out. Of course I have, but those are the ones that come to mind initially. And I find when I listen to this music, I find that there's a lot of variation to it. Maybe you guys can add to the list and some things that I'm, I'm missing at this point. When you're talking about Gen X music, if, if we're going to use that, that sort of indicator, um, mm-hmm. one of the, one of the bands that comes back to me a lot is a band like Tears for Fears, which started right. very synthetic, very, mm-hmm. very much like early synth wave stuff, but tended to show more of their classic rock side as they went on. And, and now after so many years, they had a reunion album last year. I adored it. I think it's, it's one of their strongest. I, I thought yeah. Tipping Point was very good, but it also, it shows, this level of change where um, I, th- I think a lot of the artists that we appreciate the most in this grouping had some of the freedom to do that. Now, mm-hmm. even though they kind of came in, they came in in the seventies, but I'm thinking of things, you know, artists like Elvis Costello and Joe Jackson that would do pub rock and then mm-hmm. would do a, a jazz album or would do an orchestral piece. And most of the time, it was financial failure. Elvis Costello toured that midsection. He was he was so adored by his fans and by the critics, but nobody cared until he started working again with or started working with Paul McCartney. Mm-hmm, you know, he had mm-hmm. that big resurgence, and then Paul McCartney, off of that, also had the resurgence with Flowers in the Dirt. It's almost like Flowers in the Dirt and Elvis Costello's Spike are our companion pieces. And then you could use as sort of a point of contrast as the band, the cure who really haven't changed their sound all that much in the 40 plus years they've been recording. You Even know, though they've changed um, personnel a fair amount. They, oh yeah. Yes. But, this, but their core sound has remained roughly the same. I mean, you can hear a cure song now if Robert Smith is putting out new music and then you could compare it to say something that came off of disintegration and you still hear the same kind of music. Probably because it's written by the one guy, Robert Smith. Yeah, and I tend to think that he runs Cure Incorporated very much with an iron hand. So it is almost like a one-man band that he fills out with musicians to make it happen. Mm-hmm. And a- as was pointed out, the the people who have cycled in and out of that band is, is there's far too many. I would almost equate that with sort of a modern thing, semi-modern would be Stephen Wilson of Porcupine Tree, which is mm-hmm. really a Stephen Wilson album, solo album, and a Porcupine Tree album. There's very little differentiation. As a matter of fact, it started as a one-man bedroom psychedelic project mm-hmm. that he brought people into. So, you know, in terms of The Cure, I see Robert Smith as having that iron hand. Uh, there are several artists who really are, I mean, for God's sake, Prince, most of his albums were just <laughs> Prince. Although I did like the stuff he did with the revolution to I, me was, was, yeah, that felt like a band. I, I do too. But, you know, I have to admit that I prefer the time usually more mm. because I think Morris Day is just such a more fun front man. I think that he sells it more. 
but Morris Day on most of those recordings was 10%, 90% was Jamie Starr, a.k.a. Prince, Prince not, yeah. not Flight Time, Jimmy Jam, Terry Lewis. Yeah, New Power Generation was also a good band, too, with Prince. I thought that they were really good players, uh, just very much more soulful. I think that's obviously by design. It raises the question of what you need to evolve. And sometimes there are people who can do it within themselves. I mean, Prince would do something new. Madonna evolved uh, throughout the course of her career, as did Rush uh, with the same three guys for 40 years. Whereas, yes, every two albums, well, okay, we need someone else has got to go now, or someone else <laughs> doesn't like where they're going. And so they go and grab someone else. Bill Bruford left when they were at their artistic height simply because he thought, okay, well, we've done that. So I need to go somewhere else now. Different people have different needs to be able to to change and keep going. And some people are going to be kind of buffeted by the by the trends around them. I mean, just like in the sense when everyone did a disco album or song from Kiss and Rod Stewart mm -hmm. all did uh, disco things. And for a while, Rush had kind of an influence from the police. Whereas, you know, you look at the Rolling Stones strike me as a band that are, have they changed all that much? You know, Besides miss you and emotional rescue, I would, or, and too much blood. I would say not much. It's, it's the, yeah. uh, it's that core sound that they've they've kept intact. Yeah, and right. the and big joke forever has been ACDC makes the same album forever. <laughs> yeah, <Don't> basically. They? <laughs> yeah, they, except for they Thunderstruck. Do. That that song sounded somewhat different. I mean, that that great guitar lick at the beginning, but then they yeah. had a different drummer on that on that album. But yeah, it's Chris maybe. Slade. Yeah. And the the funny yeah. thing about Chris Slade, I remember seeing an interview where they kind of pushed out Chris Slade and brought back Phil Rudd, who mm. is known for playing very simple parts. Whereas Chris Slade is a fairly accomplished drummer who's played with like one of the latter day versions of Asia. He was in Manfred Mann's early bands. He was in The Firm, that short lived Jimmy Page I, that's Paul right. Rogers project. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And when he left, uh, someone in the Someone in ACDC said, well, you know, he is probably the best musician in the group, but, you know, we need to go back to Phil because it's, it was almost in the sense that, yeah, you're, you're too good to be in this band. <laughs> <laughs> He's holding back. You can tell. <laughs> right. Exactly. In terms of bands that really had the glow up uh, within, you know, their discography, I think if you listen to the first couple of Duran Duran albums and then you heard the eponymous Duran Duran album, which had Ordinary World on it, and, mm -hmm. and I think a lot of people refer to that as the wedding album because as the married couple on it. If Simon Le Bon didn't have such a distinctive voice, I think people would hear Girls on Film and would hear you know, Ordinary World and feel like it's two completely different bands. The same thing with like Talk Talk. Aside from Mark Hollis, you if you heard It's My Life or Talk Talk, and then you heard anything off of The Color of Spring or Laughing Stock, completely different bands, except for that one person at the center, and it's their voice that grounds them. I think those are two of the groups that had so much change within their discography that the fans would appreciate i think duran duran actually had quite a, a a good boost off of that one talk talk not so much those two latter albums that i was talking about are considered to be critics darlings especially laughing stock is almost right there with on the same level like a tortoise or or maybe even something like although not as extravagant as a godspeed you black emperor but sort of taking the idea of rock but going so far away from it that rhythmically maybe but tonally absolutely not it's something else at this point you make an interesting point on duran duran because when they started those first couple of albums you have to and you talked about talk talk could lump in there spandau ballet ass absolutely three, the three the three singers had a had a style that I don't know if they copied each other or they were just kind of running with a trend, but there was something about the way in which they did their vocal phrasing that it signaled a trend because I would hear their, their delivery. And I'm thinking, huh, 
maybe that's what they're doing in England now. <laughs> you know, that's the way they sing because it it well, has this particular or this unique quality to it uh, with with regards to vocal phrasing. Well, the question is, did they influence each other, or mm-hmm. were they three? entities out in this sea of potential bands to choose from and producers and record company executives said, oh, this is the hot thing. This guy does it, this guy does it, and this guy does mm-hmm. it. So let's have right. those three people come in. As DW said earlier, look at what happened with uh, Olivia Rodrigo. You know, she she releases Sour and then now it's all angry rock again, but without the substance. Yeah. So, you know. But then mm. you also have these acts that reverse that so like the first modern english album is very arch very cold Mm -hmm. uh, very much in line with what you would expect from the 4 ad label at that time and then they come up with the second album where they have i melt with you which is like one of the singular pop songs of the 80s even though it wasn't a hit it kind of became ubiquitous with the 80s based off of the movie valley girl where it was featured Mm -hmm. very prominently and now very much so yeah they probably got it cheap that's why i I would say absolutely (laughs) that's probably why it's in there it i think it's in there twice it's in a Mm -hmm. montage and then it's in the uh end credits i want to believe but when you hear that song you immediately tie that to the 80s I guess that is another branch of the generational thing. A lot of the Gen X music, and maybe you could also say millennial music has has the same thing. Got a lot of it from soundtracks, got a lot of it from music uh, in Mm -hmm. movies. And I, I don't see that being nearly as influential in current times either, where the movies are separate from the music. The music is being fed in other ways. As a matter of fact, I would almost say that the appreciation for musical scores for movies and for video games, bouncing off to uh, what Bo was saying earlier, there is a deep respect for video game soundtracks in terms of of creating hit songs. Mm -hmm. Not so much. That's a differentiation where the current generation is not getting their pop connection at least for the most part, from movies, whereas we definitely did. Yes, I agree. And as we wrap up this podcast, I actually want to go a little bit longer, but I'm going to tee this up with a thick description. And I'm going to ask you to talk or at least comment on two soundtracks. So when I went to, not Wikipedia, but in the Encyclopedia Britannica, no, not the book, the actual online version. I looked up our generation, Generation X or Gen Xers to see if this description fits. And this is what it said. Members of Generation X or Gen Xers grew up in a time where there were more dual income families, single parent households, and children of divorce than when boomers were growing up. Consequently, many Gen Xers were latchkey kids. You did reference that earlier, DW, spending part of the day without adult supervision, as when they got home from school while their parents were still away at work. Gen Xers were the first generation to grow up with personal computers to some extent, thus becoming tech savvy. (laughs) We struggle with tech sometimes. But they said we're tech savvy. That's good. Uh, they also experienced shaky economic times as children and young adults in the 1980s and 1990s. Gen Xers are typically described as being resourceful, independent, and keen on maintaining work-life balance. They tend to be more liberal on social issues and more ethnically diverse than boomers. Gen Xers were sometimes described as slackers or whiners, particularly in the 1990s, although those descriptions have been contested. So you take that little descriptor, and I'm going to ask you about two soundtracks that were supposed to be about our generation from movies. One was the movie Singles, and the other one was Reality Bites. Both had fairly well curated soundtracks. And I don't know if you've looked at the track listing of either of those as of late, but I went back and I looked at both and I thought that maybe the Reality Bites one was a a cynical commercial ploy, but I thought, no, there's some good songs on there. And the singles soundtrack is very, very much, you know, rooted in grunge because the, the movie takes place in Seattle. These are supposed to be the soundtracks that reflect our generation. So if you look at these two soundtracks, for example, do you find that, yeah, that's close. Or do you say, well, they, they could have put some different songs on there that would have been better? Well, I mean, I would say the singles soundtrack resonated more for me to, uh, in part because mm-hmm. the, the movie did. I mean, I think Reality Bites is just a truly wretched film. 
Um, but <laughs> it's not that good. Yeah, yeah. There's some good no, parts, but uh, yeah. Yeah, you know, their idea of emoting is, you know, um, Ethan Hawke singing a fairly rude violent femme song at Winona Ryder. And, you know, that's the character that we're supposed to sympathize with. And I don't. <laughs> so, hmm. but yeah, the soundtrack, it is pretty good. And of course, Generation X to some extent is defined by irony. We seem to have an appreciation for it that well, I can't say previous generations did or not, but you see it more in our art. And, you know, in Reality Bites, you know, it starts out fairly early on. They're singing My Sharona, and you're mm-hmm. not really sure if it's ironic or not. Because they seem to be having a good time. They're having you know, a good time. The same, yeah. yeah, it's sort of like they're making fun of it, but also enjoying it at the same time. Generation X has that trait running through it where it's irony, it's it's ambivalence. You know, there's the great Simpsons thing where they go to the Lollapalooza knockoff. And, uh, you know, Homer is playing the guy who he's the guy who takes the cannonball shots to the to the stomach and and survives. And then someone in the crowd says, you know, here's the cannonball guy. He's great. Are you being sarcastic? Uh, I don't even know anymore. <laughs> so in that sense, you know, maybe Reality Bites is a good encapsulation. Gen X is just a sad one. Yeah. My Sharona was probably the one that was featured the most, but Juliana Hatfield 3, Spin the Bottle. Love that song. And that's on the soundtrack. The adult contemporary hit of Lisa Loeb's Stay, I Missed You, that really just never went away, it seemed like. But it actually has this song that I can't stand, even though I like the songwriter. And it's Ethan Hawke singing the song called I'm Nothing, which was written by David Berewald. And I think that maybe all three of us follow David Berewald on Twitter. He was in the group David and David. I like a lot of his music, but when this song was featured in the film, I thought, oh, shut up, Ethan. God, you know, I mean, this is just, this is everything. It was almost like um, you're trying too hard to create a, a an anthem for a generation that doesn't really want an anthem. It didn't work for me. Even though David Berwald, if you're listening to this podcast, I do love your music. I have to presume that the creators of Reality Bites, and I think mainly that's Ben Stiller, correct? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I have to believe that David Berwald wrote that song pretty much with what would later be Adam Schlesinger working for My Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Was that the TV show he was connected yes, with. Yes, he did. Yes. Great theme song, though. That crazy I, ex-girlfriend one, yeah. That song is insufferable, but I think it's almost meant to be insufferable as more of a commentary on that character who we're supposed to be following, but he's really kind of unlikable you know, in most ways. <laughs> but getting to the heart of the, the soundtracks, I'm with Bo in that I, I like the singles soundtrack better and unfortunately i've been listening to it an awful lot we have now lost two members of screaming trees and that is upsetting but as a group of songs i like that better but it is more a part of that time of of that movement whereas Mm -hmm. reality bites is more of what you expect from gen x which is this mix mash of styles of artists that came before and artists that are current and and you took the words right out of my mouth when you're talking about the this pairing of my sharona and then you have something like lisa loeb's stay which is it's a beautiful little pop song that is so earnest that it is almost painfully earnest so you couldn't have two different songs that would coexist on the same pop chart and i feel like that is more in line with gen x than the singles soundtrack even though i prefer the singles soundtrack and i I should also mention big mountain did a cover of peter frampton's baby i love (laughs) (laughs) well i i feel like each each generation at least in this country, because that's all that I'm an expert on or all that I can can tell you about. But I think each generation treasures diversity more than the previous one. And if you were in the generation that experienced World War II, then your cultural freedom was limited a bit because World War II was a big collective effort. You didn't have to be serving to be doing something for the war effort. And that's what dominated everything that went on. And then the baby boomers relished their freedom a good bit more. And then, 
you know, we keep going through this diversity where, yeah, Generation X, we started to look at the diversity more. And of course, again, MTV having all genres represented, you could, you could watch in the same hour, you know, you could go from Prince to Def Leppard or The Cure or The Buggles or a really bad Rod Stewart song because those were the videos that they had. Or now you, you, you hear the, the full 13 minutes of Rosalita by Bruce Springsteen. You <laughs> play yeah. that too. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. All that sort of thing. And and today you have a generation where kids in high school today are perfectly comfortable with gay people, with trans people. Racial divides, you know, maybe I'm speaking a little bit too much from the progressive area of Fairfax County, Virginia, but I think even elsewhere there's more recognition of diversity and so forth. I mean, and interracial marriage is I mean, when I was growing up, that was still something that was a little scandalous. And now we hardly even think about it. So I think that diversity has really started to grow. And I think we in Generation X, and I don't want to say that we're heroic or anything like that, but I think I think it's just what we were used to more so than than previous generations. So yeah, I think that's a good point about, you know, the reality bites soundtrack having a bit of everything in there. Of course, you know, looking at the single soundtrack, I mean they included a Jimi Hendrix song. But it's and a, it's very yeah. grunge heavy. I mean, it's Pearl Jam, it Alice in Chains. It is. Um, <laughs> and yeah, Singles isn't the most diverse movie. I mean, it is a slice of this generation. So I can, I can understand why Singles would not be held up as an example of what Generation X is. It's it's mm-hmm. just a good movie with a good soundtrack and a lot of funny moments, almost kind of like making fun of the self-absorption. I mean, I think the my favorite part of that film is when they're reading the review and Matt Dillon says, don't read me you know, anything that's negative. And they flip through and flip through and flip through. And <laughs> it's just a good movie. Movie, whereas Reality Bites, as much as I hate it, maybe it does capture a bit more of the diversity. And, um, you know, it had a gay character. And of course, the gay character was the only male character in it who wasn't a jerk, which is kind of sad. <laughs> I don't know. Perhaps that's a sign of progress that, you know, the most sympathetic male character in there was gay. Yeah. And not right. a jerk. It, yeah. Right. Exactly. He, he was he was the good one. <laughs> um, whereas the women... Eh, well, no, the writer's character a little bit superficial, but you kind of felt sorry mm-hmm. for her. And Janine Garofalo's character, you kind of liked. You're right. Our generation really experienced more of a blossoming of diversity than certainly the previous generations had. And that trend has just continued. That's a good point to end it on. Not to quote Ethan Hawke and I'm nothing. I think I like your your end point than, saying, than quoting lyrics from that song. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I agree. All right. Bo, DW. Thank you so much for being on the Planet LP podcast. Oh, thank you for having us on. Yeah, thanks very much. You're very welcome. And that'll do it for another episode. Drop me a line. Let me know what you think of this podcast or what you'd like to hear on future podcast episodes at ted at planetlp.com. Until next time, take care. Take care.